Today we're in Ezekiel chapter 23, and I'll title this, I may love my sin, but my sin will never love me. As we go through, we'll find out why I've called it that. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to dig into your word again. We just pray that you will help us to be humble, have a soft heart, so we can be taught by your spirit the truth from the word of God. Give us understanding, we pray. And Lord, as it says in Philippians, that you will work in us both to will and to do, that you will energize us and equip us to put into practice what we're going to learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. You ready? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Fantastic. So. Last week, in chapter 22, we saw how forgetting God led to moral decay and the eventual destruction of the nation. And the image that it used there was that the nation of Israel had become dross, the waste metal that is discarded or skimmed off the top as the silver is heated and purified. And so the analogy is that we too become worthless in character and fruit when we forget God, and by default we allow sin to rule over us. And we also saw that forgetting God is not something that we have to try hard to do. You know, we can all probably relate to this. Forgetting things is not something you have to work hard at. Uh, it gets easier as you get older, i found. You know, I've just got an example. My cell biology content that I learned 30 years ago, and I had to study for the exam and all that kind of stuff. You know, did I have to go to a memory removal specialist and say, I really want to get rid of these facts of cell biology? No, of course not. Okay, it just happens, doesn't it? So all I have to do is nothing. And the point is that doing nothing means going backwards. And you probably heard the analogy before that any dead fish can go with the flow downstream, you know, but it takes a living fish to swim upstream. And a person living for themselves will go with the flow of the world and become more and more like the world. And remember that, as we talked about previously, the whole Egypt, wilderness, promised land type or picture, living as the world as a Christian is a picture of being in the wilderness. It's a picture of being a weak, baby, carnal, fleshly and immature Christian. That's the different words the Bible uses to describe the person living in the wilderness. The person is not growing. However, a person who was born again and also submitted to the Spirit will be doing so only because they have made a deliberate, calculated and conscious decision to submit to God and resist the devil. They have made the decision to actively fight against the world system and instead draw near to God. And this is living by faith in the promised land. So just keep that type, that picture in your mind. You know, where am I now? Am I in the promised land or am I in the wilderness? Am I living for myself, living by sight, by what I can see, by what I want, by my own strength, or am I living in the promised land? Have I submitted the desires of my sinful nature, the physical appetites? Have I submitted those to God? And now walking by his power, by faith in the promised land. So keep in mind that the slow fade from God to the world doesn't have to be falling into obvious sin. It's not like becoming a bank robber as soon as we forget God. Often it's just losing our desire for the word of God. That's one of the first signs and symptoms. We just lose our desire for the word of God. And instead, we become more focused on worldly and temporary things like holidays and caravans and money, comfort, cars, houses, family, entertainment, leisure, camping, going to the beach, whatever is true for me or you. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, right? We just went out yesterday and had an awesome time. 
that was, you know, bringing glory to God, doing that together. But if we start to rely on them as a main source of satisfaction and contentment, then we are in trouble. If I start saying, I need to go to the beach, or I need a camper trailer, or I need a husband or wife, then what I'm really saying is that God isn't enough, and I'm not relying on him to meet all my needs. So we all need to learn the lesson that Christ is all we need, but we will never experience his truth until Christ is all we have. Right? So in the meantime, we continue to believe that we need all these other things to be content, and that's living in the wilderness when we're not fully content in Christ. Now, another sign of this moral decay is that I no longer invest or protect my relationships with others. And I begin to tolerate broken relationships. I tend to harbour unforgiveness and I tend to be more difficult to get along with. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you can relate to this. Basically, I'm becoming self-focused. That's, again, living in the wilderness, right? Promised land, others focused. Wilderness, self-focused. I'm seeking what will make me happy and not what will help the other person. And why? Well, my love for others is in direct proportion to my love for Christ. If I'm fervently seeking to grow in my relationship with God and grow closer to Him, to draw near to Him, then the natural result of that is that I will also be growing in my relationships with others. My increased love for God spills over automatically into all my other relationships. And as I treasure and guard my relationship with God, I also do the same with my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the opposite is true. So basically, our relationships are another sign or another indicator of where I'm at in a walk with Christ. So for today in chapter 23, we're going to see a clear lesson that the sins that we love will come back to bite us. The poison we consume will eventually kill us. What we sought to gain pleasure from will only end up causing us pain. And we learn the hard lesson again that the things of this world will never bring lasting satisfaction. And I love this passage in John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. It's Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So we can pursue the worldly water, worldly pursuits. We can drink that physical water, but you will thirst again. You will only receive temporary satisfaction. However, choosing to drink the water that Jesus offers, and in this case a picture of the Holy Spirit, will lead to everlasting life, an abundant life, a life characterized by lasting contentment and satisfaction. So, the moment I choose to do nothing about growing in my relationship with God, and last week and also in this chapter, God says, you have forgotten me, I become so focused and selfish because my reason for living is solely to quench my thirst for contentment and satisfaction with worldly pleasures. Again, that's living in the wilderness. However, when I commit myself to a thorough and systematic study of God's Word, I pray regularly and I pray specifically and I spend time with other believers in fellowship, then I become others-focused. I become more selfless and suddenly I don't need all those other things. Now, what did Christ say to the disciples when they brought food back? You know, who's that the woman in the well in Samaria? And the disciples brought food back. They said, are you hungry? And he said, no, I have food that you don't know about. He found his contentment, he found his satisfaction, his fulfillment in being about the Lord's business. In this case, talking to the woman at the well. And yes, the disciples did wonder what he was doing talking to this woman. It wasn't culturally the normal thing to do. But that's what he said. He found his contentment in that. In serving other people, it made his joy complete. 
And so this week we're going to see a clear picture of what happens when I cease to seek lasting satisfaction, contentment and pleasure in my relationship with God and instead seek to find temporary satisfaction, contentment and pleasure in what the world offers. So chapter 23 breaks down into five sections. The two unfaithful sisters, it's like a parable again. The older sister, Samaria, the younger sister, Jerusalem, judgment on Jerusalem, and then God judges their gross hypocrisy. So we'll get in and find out what this is talking about. So starting at verse 1, Ezekiel chapter 23, it's the two unfaithful sisters. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts were there embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Their names, Ahola, the elder, and Aholibah, her sister. They were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Ahola, and Jerusalem is Aholibah. So, a picture of two symbolic sisters that represent the two kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the main point we're going to see here is that Judah, the southern kingdom, or Jerusalem, followed in the sinful ways of Samaria, which is the northern kingdom. Now, Jerusalem should have learned the lesson, right? Think about this. A hundred years before, or 120 years before, roundabout, the northern kingdom had wanted to be like the nation of Assyria. Very powerful nation. It was a world power at the time. And they said, well, they're so powerful, it must be their gods. And so they tried to become like the Assyrians, and they started to behave like the Assyrians. And so, what did God do? Well, what they wanted, what their sin was, God used it against them, and the Assyrians destroyed them. Judah and Jerusalem are doing the same thing with the Babylonians. We want to be powerful like the Babylonians. We look up to these guys. Let's be like the Babylonians. Let's worship the Babylonian idols. And what is God going to do? He's going to use the sin they love to destroy them, yeah? And the reason he does that is to take away our desire or our love for that thing. He shows us that it's not good for us. So as a summary, we've got Ahola and Aholibah. And so Ahola is the northern kingdom, Israel, and the capital was Samaria. And Aholibah is the southern kingdom, the Judah. The capital was Jerusalem. Now, the names have meanings, and the meanings are important. So Ahola, the northern kingdom, Samaria, her name means her own tabernacle. Now, why did God call her her own tabernacle? Well, if you know the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, what they did when they split, when the nation split after Solomon died, the king up there, Jeroboam, he didn't want the people going back down into Judah to worship at the temple, so he set up the two golden calves. That's the typical god of Egypt, for one of them. And therefore, it was her own tabernacle. God disowned them. He said, that's not my tabernacle, that's your tabernacle. They rejected worshipping God at the temple and instead made the two golden calves for their citizens to worship. But a holy bar, they continued to worship at the temple. So even though they were very unfaithful, God still said, my tabernacle is in her. So the temple was in Jerusalem, and they continued to worship there. So that's the meaning of the names. In verse 3 it says, They committed harlotry in Egypt. A quote from David Guzik here. Ezekiel states a theme that will be repeated several times in this chapter. This is that Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh from the very start, worshipping idols in Egypt. Symbolically, their worship of Egyptian idols was like giving their bodies to those gods. Their breasts were there embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Again, physical adultery is used to describe spiritual adultery, where they go after the idols. And it says they committed harlotry in Egypt. Again, a bit more on this. They never really left or forsook 
in the Egyptian idols. There was always a part of them that longed for the worldly Egyptian lifestyle. They always wanted to go back. If you go through the wilderness wanderings, what do they want? Go back to Egypt. They're never content with what God gave them. They had angels' food, remember? Water from the rock, meat, but they were never content. They wanted to go back all the time. Now, the Egyptian lifestyle included sexual immorality associated with the worship of many of their idols and the resulting unwanted pregnancies. And they dealt with the unwanted children in the same way we do today. They murder the babies so they can keep having fun. And it's no coincidence that in this chapter that graphically describes both spiritual and physical adultery, God also brings up his pet hate, which is murdering children. So as you go through the Bible, you'll hear a lot about basically what we call today abortion. God says, it never even entered my heart. It never entered my mind. Something that we can stand up for, if there's an issue you want to stand up for, and stand up and represent God in our culture, is stand up against abortion. Ezekiel 20 verses 5 to 8 tells us that while the Israelites were still in Egypt, God told them to forsake the idols of Egypt, but they did not. And what's happening now is a sad consequences of not dealing decisively with the root of the sin. And as you go through the history, his three examples of their failure to completely forsake Egypt and as a result go back to it. So they worship the golden calf at Mount Sinai, Exodus 32, 1-6. Joshua, at the end of his life, so after like 40 years in the Promised Land, Joshua told the people to put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So even though Joshua had given them victory over many of their enemies there, what did he say? Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And Jeroboam chose, as we mentioned before, to worship the golden calves as a national religion in the place of the temple. And going back to that second point with Joshua, what did the children of Israel do once Joshua and all the other elders had died who had seen you know, the Jordan River crossing? What happened? They went straight back into idolatry, didn't they? Why? Because they had not prepared their hearts to seek the Lord and deep down they still wanted this thing. They still wanted to be like the world. I'm going to have an application on that in a minute, but it says in verse 4, they were mine. Judah and Israel belonged to God according to the same principles as we do, the church, right? That is election, redemption, and a marriage covenant. So election, redemption, and the marriage covenant. So if replacement theology is correct, and God really has broken and forsaken his covenant promises made to Israel, then what eternal security or hope do we, the church, have? considering that the church is just as faithless as Israel, yeah? Have you bothered to look at church history? If you do, it'll make you blush, okay? Am I really represented by this group of people? You know? So, but what does God say? They were mine. What does he say about us? You are mine, yeah? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So God keeps his promises, so take confidence in that. Now, I'm going to go back to this thing about this point about when we don't deal with or forsake our sin completely. Okay, so Israel never really completely forsook their desire for worldly Egypt and its fleshly pleasures, and we can fall into the same trap. And you might ask, but what about the times when they were obeying God? Wouldn't you say that they had forsaken their desire or longing for Egypt then? Well. Yes and no. Yes, outwardly, but no, inwardly. They had not. So there's several reasons why our desire for worldly things might remain latent or hidden. Okay, So it might be under the surface, yeah? So our reputation of pride. We don't want others to find out about us being like that, and so we don't do that thing, right? It might have negative side effects. It might damage our marriage, it might damage our career, and that means something to us. So we want to do the thing, but we know it's going to have nasty consequences, so we don't. 
And then there's also the fear of the obvious and direct personal, painful, practical and physical consequences. Like you might get an STD or go to jail or a financial loss, whatever it might be. But what happens when these objections to sin are minimized? You know, we start justifying it and saying, well, no one will know. The opportunity comes. It could be that no one will find out. Or the desire to sin grows enough to overcome these other selfish objections. And we basically say, well, I don't care if they find out. I don't care if it's going to cost me that. I then cross that boundary and I seek to satisfy the desires of my sinful nature and my physical appetites. And then the true condition of my heart becomes very painfully obvious. And this is the danger of not dealing with the root cause of our sin, the desires of our hearts. And we'll read a verse in James about that. The desires, the evil desires at war within you. So last week we learned with Jesus' prayer in the garden, we must completely submit our desires to God. And it's going to take work. We have to pray and pray, and pray that God would take those desires away from us and submit them to him. Now, why does it work with prayer? Why do we have to keep praying? Why do we have to persist in prayer? Because prayer doesn't just change other people. The most important thing prayer changes is us. Does that make sense? So as we pray, we are changing because we are submitting to God, and that's the process that we have to go through. If we don't spend the time in prayer, then we don't change. It's as simple as that even if you're reading the Word. So it's a combination of being in the Word and then prayerfully applying that Word, knowing what we should be doing, and then praying that God would do that work in us. And even just thinking about the sinful desire without actually acting on it, and the image here is letting it simmer below the surface, is still very dangerous. Okay, Because why? A simmering pot will eventually boil over. If you're cooking and you know that's simmering, simmering, it's easy to boil over. Okay. Now let's read James 4 1 to 5. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it and even when you ask you don't get it because your motives are all wrong you want only what will give you pleasure temporary pleasure yeah again this is walking in the wilderness you adulterers again in the new testament spirits adultery yeah don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God I say it again if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. So, sounds like Ezekiel, doesn't it? Same language, yeah? God is against those who rebel against him. Not that he's disowned them, we're still his children, but we're walking opposite to him and we're going to run into his discipline. So what I need to do is choose to leave that desire or physical appetite completely submitted to God, meaning completely forsaken. So, you know, there were times when I wanted to give up TV and I just kind of, yeah, I know it's not good for me, I'll watch less TV or I'll have a TV fast and I'll go off TV a little bit, you know. But what am I going to do? I'm going to get back to it, right? I've left the pot simmering. I've left that desire there. I haven't put it to death. So what I have to do is not I'll watch less or have a break for a while so I don't feel guilty, but rather go back to the Word and find out, does this meet the criteria of holiness and purity found in Philippians 4, 8 and 9? And if it doesn't, then it must go. It's got to go because it's not right. It's wrong. And this is the only way to bring lasting change into our lives. These sinful desires and physical appetites must be completely submitted to God. It's not my will, but your will be done. Not my way, but your way. And so if we don't deal with our sin at the desire level, not just the behavioral level, 
then it's going to come back one day with a vengeance and destroy us. And just like we're going to see happened with the nations of Judah and Israel. We've got to deal with the desire at the heart level. We've got to get rid of that. Again, as we learned last week, it takes effort in prayer. And that verse in Philippians, this applies to just about every aspect of our lives. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, what did God say about the Israelites last week? Well, last time, last chapter, and the chapter before. I am against you, right? Why? Because they're not living in fellowship with him. They're not walking with him. They're not abiding in him. And they're going to come against his discipline. So now we go to the next section, part two, the older sister, Samaria. So God has introduced the two sisters, and now he's going to describe the older sister, Samaria, first. So let's read verses 5 to 10. Ahola played the harlot, even though she was mine. And she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians, who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Thus she committed her harlotry with them, all of them choice men of Assyria, and with all for whom she lusted, with all the idols, she defiled herself. She has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt. See that? She has never given it up. For in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. Therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. So. Samaria loved and wanted to be like Assyria, and then God used the Assyrians to come and destroy them. They took them, they fought against them and took them captive. And so their idol became their judgment. So verse 5, it says, Ahola played the harlot. So again, played the harlot or physical adultery is a common metaphor in the Old Testament scriptures for spiritual adultery. That's what James said, right? We've read that before. Adulterers, adulteresses. Spiritual adultery is the worship of other gods. So in this context, though, it means both literal and spiritual adultery. And 1 Kings 12, 26-33 shows us how the northern kingdom of Israel had been spiritually unfaithful ever since God has split the nation in two. So right from the very start, they had been worshipping these golden calves. So from the birth of the northern kingdom, after Solomon died, it was just always going back and worshipping those Egyptian gods. And the other thing is that when you're worshipping those idols, they had sexually immoral practices associated with them. And so it's both. Now, verses 5 and 9. She lusted for her lovers the neighboring Assyrians. Therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. And I quote from David Guzik. Before the Assyrians conquered Israel, Samaria, the northern kingdom, she followed her attraction to their gods, their power, their protection, and their ways. This repeats an irony expressed before in Ezekiel. When God's people reject him and embrace the idols of the nations, He allows those nations to conquer his people. So what they look to for protection actually ends up destroying them. What they look to for fulfillment and enjoyment actually turns out to be something that's going to destroy them. Another quote from Wisby. Samaria had no true faith in the living God, so she looked to the Assyrians to help her. The picture here is that of a prostitute seeking a lover to care for her, and the language is quite graphic. Samaria not only welcomed Assyria's soldiers, but also Assyria's idols, and the religion of the northern kingdom became a strange mixture of Mosaic law and Assyrian idolatry. And you can see that in 
2 Kings 17, 6 to 15. So, you know, the temptation is for us to look at those in the world who are doing well materially and consider that to be success. I then envy their success and I seek to be like them. And in doing so, I end up adopting the same values and priorities in my life, thinking that if I live like them, then I will become like them and share in their material success. Now, how many people today make idols out of bands and actors and rich people, sports stars, you know? It's pretty common, isn't it? They dress like them, they talk like them, they end up living like them, all because of the illusion that by living that way, they can experience the same material success as the worldly idol. So what's the cost of doing that? Well, if I'm seeking God and worshipping Him alone, then I will become like God. I'll be transformed into His image. And even though, yes, I will suffer in this life because I'm a Christian, Romans 8, 17, I will eventually share His glory. So the key phrase here is, I become like what I worship or look up to. If I'm looking up to God, worshipping God, I will become like Him, yeah? However, if I take my eyes off God and by default begin to worship someone or something else, then I will surely become like them and will inevitably share their certain disgrace and punishment. Again, I'll become like what I worship or look up to. And if you look in Romans 6.16, it tells us that whatever I bow down to, Whatever I worship, I become a slave to that thing. And so this was borne out literally in the history of the nation of Israel before they eventually fell to the Assyrians. And here's a couple of quotes to show that this actually happened. The black obelisk of Salmanazar III illustrates Jehu prostrating himself before the Assyrian king about 840 BC and offering gifts possibly with a view to buying support against Hazel of Damascus. So what's Jehu doing there? He's submitting himself to this foreign king. Instead of seeking help from who? God, yeah. So when you look up to someone, when you idolize them, then you also seek help from them. And there's another one here. Second Kings also describes a paying of tribute by Israel to Assyria in the reigns of Menahem and Hosea. And you see that in Second Kings, that's from Taylor. So the worldly things that I chase will become my masters. If I'm seeking to be rich, then money becomes my master. If I'm seeking physical gratification, then my body and its appetites become my master. And that's painfully obvious, I think, in our lives, at least in mine. Now, again, what they looked Two for help and a pathway to success ended up being their downfall. And so here's the answer, the antidote to this, right? Before we look at worldly people and envy their temporary material success, remember and consider Psalm 73. The material success and pleasure of the wicked is an illusion. And their downfall and eventual judgment is the reality. Okay? Just remember that. The people who appear to be successful in this world, that success is an illusion. Why am I saying that? Is it real? Is that money real? Well, yes and no. How long is it going to last? The world and the form of it is passing away. So it's temporary. So in that sense, it's an illusion. It's not going to last. But their judgment will. So don't seek something that's not going to last and is going to result in an eternal negative consequence. Feinberg says, Throughout the scriptures it may be discerned that divine retribution operates in such a way that the source of sinful pleasure becomes a source of punishment. So I'll say that again. Throughout the scriptures it may be discerned that divine retribution operates in such a way that the source of sinful pleasure becomes a source of punishment. Samaria's lovers became her destroyers. They loved the nation of Assyria. They looked up to that. It was their idol. And they ended up being the ones who destroyed her. Now, let's have a look why they loved the Assyrians. 
the description is given in verse 6. Who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men. (laughs) Physical attraction, purely physical attraction. And this is a picture of the temptations that come along and the pleasures in this world are literally only skin deep. What happens to your heart? You get that boyfriend that everyone says you need and all that kind of stuff. Is your heart satisfied? Of course not, yeah? Your heart is empty and dry. There's no real satisfaction. It's just skin deep. She has never given up her harlot she brought from Egypt. And again, we mentioned that before. They never stopped worshipping the two golden calves right from the beginning and they, right to the very end. They still trusted in those calves. And in verse 10, they uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with a sword. And this literally happened in 722 BC. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Now, what did the southern kingdom think about the northern kingdom because of this? Oh, you foolish people. They were a byword. Later we'll see that they were a byword. They were like a curse word for being stupid, you know. How could they be so stupid, you know, to trust in the Assyrians? We wouldn't do something like that. (laughs) No, we're going to trust the Babylonians instead. (laughs) We're really clever. Not. So, uh, John Corson says, the ten northern tribes flirted with the idols of Assyria and were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC. You'd think the younger sister would see the difficulty of her older sister and learn a lesson, but that's not what happened. So let's see what happened in the next section, verses 11 through 21. This is about the younger sister, sister Jerusalem. Now although her sister Aholibah, Jerusalem, saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, that is Ahola or Samaria, and in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. She lusted for the neighbouring Assyrians, captains and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding on horses, uh, cavalry, all of them desirable young men. Then I saw that she was defiled. Both took the same way. But she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion. Now it's shifting because the Assyrians were wiped out and now it's the Babylonians at that time. Girded with belts around their waists, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity, that is where Abraham came from. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their immorality. So she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Then I, God, alienated myself from her as I had alienated myself from her sister. Yet she multiplied her harlotry in calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt, for she lusted for her paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys, whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. So, they did not learn their lesson. <laughs> Just like the northern kingdom of Israel idolized and craved to be like the Assyrians, so the southern kingdom of Israel idolized and craved to be like the Babylonians. And again, what does history do? It repeats itself, yeah? And what that famous quote, one thing we do learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Have you found this to be true in your life? Do we make the same mistakes more than once? Mm-hmm. So many times I can testify I have not learned from my mistakes because if I had, I wouldn't have repeated them so often and suffered the same shame and the same consequences. Now it's interesting, verse 11, Judah became more corrupt in her lust than the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. So after seeing Samaria's judgment, you know, their horrible three-year siege, it was immense suffering. It's just the same kind of suffering as what's going to come to Judah soon in the timeline here. The Babylonians coming, 
Judah not only does the same, but does worse. And, you know, this would have to be the definition of stupidity and foolishness. Why would they do that? Well, what does sin do to us? It causes us to lose our ability to think logically and clearly. In our drive for self-pleasure and self-gratification, we become blind to the dark reality of our situation. I mean, why do people keep taking drugs? Why do people keep taking alcohol? Why do people keep on doing things that are hurting them and destroying them? It's because they are blind. And this is what Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25 says. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. What does that remind you of? They forgot God, yeah? And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. So notice that. What happens when we forget God? Our minds become dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead become utter fools. And instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them. He alienated himself from them, that's what Ezekiel says, to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Romans 1, 21-25 In verse 17, The Babylonians came to her into the bed of love. And another quote from David Guzik, Ezekiel continues with the familiar theme of using gross sexual promiscuity to illustrate Jerusalem's idolatry. This was accurate as a spiritual illustration, but was also connected to literal reality. It was literal adultery, literal sexual immorality, because many of the rites connected with the Babylonian idols were sexual in nature, especially sex with prostitutes representing the idol. Truly, they defiled her with their immorality. So, what was their lifestyle like? Full of sexual immorality. Now, what's the message from the world today? Do what you want. Enjoy yourself, right? Have a good time. And we are defiled by the world if we allow the world to come into our lives and allow those things to happen to us or we do those things to other people so a quote from Maya if a Christian choose worldly prosperity or his own reputation or any earthly object apart from God it is through this that he will suffer the things that he has loved will be raised up against him just as Israel that had dallied with Babylon was carried into captivity to Babylon now I've got an application here it's quite pertinent for today's situation with our society that we live in and the technology that we have. In verse 13 and 16, I've put them together. She looked at men portrayed on the wall. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them. So what does it tell us about our eyes? What do we need to do with our eyes? We need to protect them, right? Now, what about our children? We need to protect the eyes of our children. We must protect them from going down this disgusting road that has such terrible consequences. So imagine giving teenagers, you know, hormonal beings with little self-control, access to any and all types of pornography. Now, what parent would do such a thing? Well, actually any parent who either gives their child a smartphone with internet access or allows unsupervised access on any kind of device that is connected to the internet. That's what they're doing. And also many parents even take or allow their children to see movies or watch TV, which has way too much skin in their vision, as the saying goes, and or sexual themes, you know, homosexuality and all that kind of stuff, you know, living together. We need to protect our children. What the world considers normal is not right. It might be normal that children are sleeping around in their early teens, but it's not right. And even the worldly professionals admit that it's not healthy or beneficial. It has a massive cost. And why is the average age of sexual promiscuity getting lower and lower? Well, I would suggest that it's the unfettered access 
to younger and younger minors of uncensored content, that would be one of the major or leading causes. Children are getting smartphones at younger and younger ages as time goes on, as it becomes more acceptable or normal to do so. So what do you think they're doing on their phones as they're huddling groups and the school breaks and, you know, outside of school? <laughs> what do you think they're looking at? What do you think they're showing each other? What do you think they're educating each other with, you know? They're not playing Pac-Man, you know? Back when I was a kid, they had computer games and it was basically Pac-Man, you know, moving that thing around and trying to destroy the spaceship or whatever. Not anymore. Technology has moved on, okay? And we need to be careful. So here's a warning from Jesus that can be applied to us as parents. Luke 17, 1-3 One day Jesus said to his disciples, There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. Now I've got some practical advice because I've had a little bit of experience with both at where I work and at home. Free advice for parenting children in a morally depraved world. Now, there is intense peer pressure put on our children by other children who have already been led astray and are already trapped in sin and burdened by various addictions. So the choices we make as godly parents to protect our children from the evils of this world will not be popular decisions with our children. It's not going to be easy, okay? And we must remember that we are not their friend, we are their parent. Okay, we're not their friend, we are their parent. We're not there to please them, we are there to protect them, to nurture them, to love them, to do what's best for them. Now, these difficult decisions are made easier the younger we begin to explain the general differences between God's way and the world's way to our children. So from a young age, you can start to show them that God's way is this, the world's way is this. And at age-appropriate levels, you can start introducing what the world is teaching and say why it's wrong. Now, our children being children lack the ability to see the big picture and can only see that they are apparently missing out on something good that everyone else is enjoying. Now, what does that remind you of? What did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Or especially to Eve, you know. God's holding back something from you. God knows that if you, you know, and he went on. Satan's temptation to Eve was that God was holding something back. And that's what Satan wants our kids to think about us as parents. Oh, our parents are holding us back from enjoying something good. So we need to show empathy towards our children, understanding the tremendous struggle that they endure. It's not easy for them. The children of this world, you know, the children that have already been corrupted, are very cruel, typically. And being different to the crowd and not being accepted by the crowd is not easy for our children. They will face rejection by their peers because they are not allowed to, or choose not to, enjoy the popular, sinful, worldly attractions. Okay? So it's not an easy thing for them. It's not an easy thing for us. So prayer. Okay, we need to pray for our kids, pray for our wisdom for us to be strong and wise. And to counteract this, the home must be a place of strong, healthy and godly relationships so that our children have somewhere safe to call home and be accepted for the right reasons. Yeah? Kids must be feel welcome and loved and accepted at home and then they won't be seeking it so much out there. And this is also where a godly church family is really important. So it's not just your family. It takes a community to raise a child. You know, that's partly true. So now we move to the next part. Ezekiel 23, verses 22 to 25. And this is the judgment on Jerusalem. Therefore, Aholibah, thus says the Lord God. So remember, this is now talking about the southern kingdom. Behold, I will stir up your lovers against you. Who are they? Babylonians, right? From whom you have alienated yourself, and I will bring them against you from every side. 
the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, Pekon, Shoah, Koa, all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. Remember the irony here? This is why they desired them in the first place, all these strong, you know, muscle-bound guys on horses, you know, their military outfits. Now they're coming against you with these same uniforms and they're coming against you with chariots, wagons and war horses and with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield and helmet all around. I will delegate judgment to them. Remember that last week? A week before? God uses natural means to discipline us. And they shall judge you according to their judgments. I will set my jealousy against you. Again, he is against us when we're against him. On a discipline level. And they shall deal furiously with you. And they shall remove your nose and your ears. Doesn't sound pretty, does it? But it's true, it's what happened. The Assyrians, the Babylonians didn't do this, but the Assyrians put a hook in their jaw and they walked person after person with a hook in their jaw. Imagine having that, a big fish hook through your jaw attached to the next person walking thousands of kilometers back to Assyria. And your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and daughters, and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. So, nakedness, shame. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness, that is your sexually explicit behavior and things like that, and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt, so that you will not lift your eyes to them, nor remember Egypt any more. So why is God doing this judgment? To stop this inner desire to be like the Egyptians, to go back to Egypt, yeah? That's God's purpose. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt. You're going to hate it so much you won't ever want to go back there again. Verse 28, For thus says the Lord God, Surely I will deliver you into the hand of those you hate into the hand of those from whom you alienated yourself. So the semi love, guess what? We're going to end up hating it one day. They loved them, now they hate them. They will deal hatefully with you. The sin will never ever love you, remember? They will take away all you have worked for and leave you naked and bare. The nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotry. I will do these things to you because you have gone as a harlot after the Gentiles because you have become defiled by their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will put her cup in your hand. In other words, the same consequence, right? Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much, much judgment that is. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breast, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me, again, this thing about forgetting God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your harlotry. Last week was, if we forget God, we will fall into sin and will pay the price for that. Verse 24 and 27. I will delegate judgment to them. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt so that you will not lift your eyes to them nor remember Egypt anymore. So what does God do? He uses natural means to discipline us. He uses those evil things that we love to discipline us so that we will learn to hate them. We will not go back to them. Now, in verse 21 it says, I alienated myself from her. Now, a husband and wife, picture this, right? If the husband or the wife is unfaithful, what does the other partner do? What does the other spouse do? They protect themselves, right? They alienate themselves. They separate themselves because of the breach of trust. So broken trust and disloyalty is very painful, and that's why sin grieves God. And so there's like a picture here of God alienating himself from us when we sin against him. It grieves him. 
It's broken trust. It's disloyalty as we seek to find pleasure in the world instead of seeking him. Verse 25, I will set my jealousy against you. And so remember, there's two jealousies. There's a positive jealousy and a negative jealousy. So the positive jealousy that God feels is toward the other man in her life in the way that, well, I have so much love to give her. I just want the opportunity to love her, to serve her. Yeah, That's God's attitude to us. It's not what he can get, it's what he can give. I want to provide for her needs, but she's not asking, so I can't help. And that other guy can't and won't care for her like I would. And so, again, it's for her benefit. That's a positive jealousy. The negative jealousy is a selfish jealousy based on what she will do for him. But that's not how God works. Verse 29. They will deal hatefully with you. Take away all you have worked for and leave you naked and bare. So all the good we have done will be undone, wasted and ruined, and we will lose our reward and experience great shame. Again, is sin worth the cost? What does 1 John 5 say? Somewhere in there. Beware that you do not lose your reward. And verse 35, Because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your harlotry. Again, the root cause of our sin, what is it? We forget God. We stop seeking Him. We stop putting energy and time and effort into our relationship with God. And as soon as we stop, we start going the other way and we become more like the world. And that brings judgment, discipline. Now, the last section. God judges our sins and gross hypocrisy. This is quite a difficult read. The Lord also said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahoah and Aholibah? Then declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Moreover, they have done this to me. And this is saying, look how much they've hurt me, right? They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For after they had slain their children for the idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And indeed, thus they have done in the midst of my house. That's <laughs> gross, eh? Furthermore, you sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and there they came. And you washed yourself for them, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table prepared before it, on which you had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and Sabians were brought from the wilderness, with men of the common sort who put bracelets on their wrists and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who had grown old in adulteries. Grown old in adulteries, yeah? This life of sin had aged them prematurely. Will they commit adultery with her now, and she with him? Yet they went into her as men go into a woman who plays a harlot. Thus they went into a holla and a holiba, the lewd women. But righteous men will judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women who shed blood, because they are adulteresses, and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, Bring up an assembly against them, that is a conglomeration of nations, and give them up to trouble and plunder. The assembly shall stone them with stones, and execute them with their swords. They shall slay their sons and their daughters, and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will cause lewdness to cease from the land, that all women may be taught not to practice your lewdness. Then, they shall repay you for your lewdness, and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. So lewdness is used all through this chapter. It just means like, you know, we're lured if we make sexual jokes and vulgar sexual comments. That's lewdness, you know. It's that sexual behavior innuendo that we shouldn't be doing. It shouldn't be named among us. So in verse 39, just going back to there, for after they had slain their children for their idols, notice it says, for their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it, and indeed thus they have done in the midst of my house. So again, it's hard to imagine this happening. A person goes to 
Molech Idol watches her son and daughter sizzle to death on the red-hot metal of the statue as the drums beat to drown out the child's screams. They then go to the temple and offer up sacrifices, read scripture and sing the songs. Now God takes this as a personal insult. Personal insult, I believe. Moreover, they have done this to me. It's a total lack of respect and reverence. And so the application here is hypocrisy. God will not accept my worship if I'm continuing to live or practice a worldly lifestyle. Remember that until I repent, then God is against me. He has alienated himself from me. Playing the Christian on Sundays and at Bible study will only make God more angry with me. God hates hypocrites, so be real. Be hot or be cold, but don't be lukewarm. I must choose this day who I will serve. I must not pretend to serve God if my heart is elsewhere, if my affections are given over to seeking sinful pleasures and desires, or, and this is another one that was true for me for a while when I was younger, if I'm holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness which causes my heart to be cold both to God and to others. So that was something that is internal that we can hold on to. If we are given over to bitterness or unforgiveness, if we don't deal drastically with that, again, that prayer thing where we go, God, please give me the strength to forgive this person. Please help this relationship to be whole as much as depends on me. Change my attitude towards this person. Now, another application to finish, continuing in sin even though I understand that it is destroying me. Then I said concerning her who had grown old in adulteries, will they commit harlotry with her now and she with them? Yet they went into her. Now a picture here. You've seen those pictures of the heavy smokers? You know, the girl, she's, you know, maybe 30 years old. And she looks like she's about 70, you know, with wrinkled skin and gray hair and all that kind of stuff. And she looks terrible. That's what sin does to us, yeah? We age prematurely. It has an effect on how much energy we have and, you know, it makes us weak and we act like we're really old. Her sin had prematurely aged them and made them weak. And they could see the negative effects of her sin and how it was destroying them. But they stubbornly continued in it. And it's amazing how illogical and stubborn I can become when it comes to my sin. Now, I've experienced this. Often I don't even enjoy it anymore. I don't even know why I'm continuing in it. But this is what sin does to those who submit to it instead of submitting to God. Sin both blinds me and then consumes me until there's nothing left of me. I will grow old and die, basically. You know, metaphorically speaking. I will have sacrificed my life for what? For something I end up not wanting and feel trapped in. I will end up completely spent, wiped out, and rendered useless. And that's what it means in Romans 8 verse 6 and other passages where it says about sin leading to death. In this one it says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. It's not talking about your eternal destiny. It's talking about now. And it's going to finish with a, a few verses from Romans. Romans chapter 13, 11 to 14. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's an active thing, isn't it? Yeah? So we're not going to avoid sin by doing nothing. We must fight it. We must Rebel against it in a positive way, you know? By submitting to God, we're saying no to sin. So we're going to have communion now. So what are we going to think of as we take communion? Well, did God save us to leave us as we are? No. When God saved us, he makes us into a new creation. And we have the power of the blood which gives us that freedom 
from sin. We no longer have to sin. We can go to the throne and we can pray to be delivered from those desires. Is it going to happen automatically? Will it happen if I do nothing? No, of course not. So when we take communion, do we have to be perfect? Do we avoid communion because, well, you know, I've got this thing I'm still dealing with? No. The whole thing about communion is that we come to find help. And we humble ourselves and we say, God, I'm really struggling with these things. Would you please help me? Would you please forgive me? And we don't run from it. Now, on the other hand, there is probably a circumstance where I wouldn't take communion, and that is if I'm knowing that I'm doing the wrong thing, willingly sinning, and I don't want God's help, and I'm playing the hypocrite, then God will be saying, look what they're doing to me. You know, This is horrible. They're taking communion, and they have no desire in their heart to change. So if you just have a little bit of desire in your heart to change, that's the spirit working in you, and come to the table, find that strength, Remember where that strength comes from. It comes from the blood. The blood that Jesus built that cleanses us from our sin. And Romans 6 is a good chapter to read about that. So I'll pray. Father, I thank you for the message we've heard from Ezekiel chapter 23. Lord, it's powerful. The lesson that you are teaching us from the example of the nation of Israel. It's really obvious, it's really clear, but we make the same mistake again and again. Lord, I pray that we will be wise and that we will learn from our mistakes. We will learn that the sin that we love will destroy us, given time. Lord, help us to remember that your blood has cleansed us from all sin. And Lord, you have made us into a new creation we are a new person with new thoughts new desires we want to serve you the new part of us wants to serve you the new part of us can't do anything wrong it's perfect but we still have this sin nature dwelling in us as well father we just pray that you will help us to continue this process of sanctification where we will continue to come to you in prayer over the issue that you're talking to us about right now And we will wrestle at the throne of grace, finding help to help us in our time of need. And we'll keep wrestling until we receive all that help. And that desire is completely quenched, is completely submitted to you. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name.